This is an ABC podcast. Hi, Lynn Malcolm with you, continuing our season of favourite All in the Mind programs from my time as host. Today, in an episode from 2016, we delve into the structure that links the two sides of our brain and hear what happens when that structure lets us down. I often get told, well, you know, you look fine, you act fine and you fit into the norms, so you mustn't have any challenges. That's often frustrating because I have a lot of challenges that people don't see. So just casual social situations are very, very awkward and recognising social cues, very high anxiety. A lot of the characteristics with corpus callosal conditions are similar to autism. I think a lot of it is often from society's reactions and, yeah, expectations. Abby Kinnabara is 25 years old and she has a rare brain disorder, a partial agenesis of the corpus callosum, which means that the middle part of this brain structure is missing. Today, we hear how disorders of the corpus callosum affect people's lives and what this structure is teaching us about brain plasticity. Professor Linda Richards, Deputy Director of the Queensland Brain Institute, specialises in corpus callosal research. The corpus callosum is the largest fibre tract in the brain, so it's the connections between nerve cells in the two hemispheres of the brain. So it's really the conduit between the two sides of the brain, and it allows that information transfer from one hemisphere to another. So the corpus callosum is required for any functions that the brain has that need to be integrated between the two sides of the body, if you like. And so the information that comes into the brain needs to be integrated and the corpus callosum is the fibre track that enables that to happen. It's also very important for other functions which are lateralised more to one side of the brain. For example, reading and language. Those functions require one side of the brain to dominate and the other side of the brain to be somewhat inhibited to allow that to occur. So what are some of the disorders associated with this part of the brain? This is a disorder that usually occurs during development prior to birth. And uh, the corpus callosum starts to develop around 12 weeks of human gestation and then continues on after that, even after birth. So by around 20 weeks of gestation, at the ultrasound at that stage, the um, doctor will be able to tell whether or not the child has a normally developing corpus callosum. Because it is a developmental disorder, some of the genes that regulate formation of the corpus callosum are also important for regulating the formation of other organs. Could be the kidneys, heart, lungs, other organs of the body. So sometimes children have a deficit in the corpus callosum, but they also have other life-threatening deficits. They're the deficits that the doctors really have to concentrate on because they're, they're really quite life-threatening. There are people that have isolated corpus callosum disorder. So that means that they only have a corpus callosum disorder as far as we can tell. And they don't have major uh, um, organ system deficits. So the dilemma 
actually at the 20-week gestational period is to be able to provide some degree of certainty to the doctor and to the family as to the possible prognosis for that child. And we're not in a position to be able to do that at the moment because we can't do a genetic test really for it at the moment. And the outcome can be everything from a very poor quality of life for the child. They may be blind, deaf, never learn to walk or talk and not interact with their parents to a very high-functioning individual, everything in between. So you can imagine that it's an incredibly difficult time for parents who have this diagnosis. What kind of decisions might they make? They may even be considering terminating the pregnancy at that stage. They're desperate to understand whether or not if they have another pregnancy, will the same, you know, what's the risk of having the same thing happen? And so it's a really important issue that as scientists and doctors, we're really trying to address this issue right now. And it's just the hardest thing for parents at that time. It's thought that about one in 3,000 people have a significant corpus callosal disorder, but some say that's an underestimate. Linda Richards explains what's known so far about the causes of the disorder. We have some understanding now of some of the cells that are required for forming a bridge between the hemispheres to allow the corpus callosum axons to cross over. And that developmental process is controlled by a large range of different genes. So if a person happens to have a mutation in one of those genes, and often this occurs what we call de novo, so just in that child there was some... an accident of genetic engineering, if you like, as the baby was made, and there's a mutation in that gene, then these processes don't proceed in the correct way. Most of this work has been done in animal models, particularly in a mouse model. And so what we're trying to do now is working with our clinical colleagues to take this research into the clinic so we can have a genetic test that would at least allow some understanding of the clinical syndrome that might be being presented in utero with that ultrasound at 20 weeks. Because at that point, if there was information given to the parents, it would help in terms of management of the pregnancy and also the child after birth. So they can give them the best possible chance. So we've talked about um, genetic influences on corpus callosum disorders. Are there environmental factors as well? There are environmental factors that can um, cause corpus callosum malformations. So one of the best known ones is fetal alcohol syndrome disorder or FASD. What happens in those children is um, the mother is usually an alcoholic and drinking a lot during the pregnancy and this can have a significant and severe impact on brain development and the corpus callosum is is one of the structures that's vulnerable in fetal alcohol syndrome disorder. There are a number of other environmental influences that we are interested in as scientists to try and see whether there could be a link. 
Of course, one of the topical ones just recently is Zika virus, which does cause significant brain abnormalities. And the most severe brain abnormality is microcephaly. So this is a a severe brain disorder where not enough cells are made in the brain, so the brain is smaller in the children. And the most significantly affected areas are the cerebral hemispheres that are connected by the corpus callosum. So generally people with microcephaly can sometimes have callosal abnormalities as well. So that's just an example of a viral infection that could potentially cause this. There are possibly other viral infections that might have an impact on um, on corpus callosum development that we don't know about as well. But certainly uh, fetal alcohol syndrome disorder is one that's um, where the link is very clear. Professor Linda Richards. Marie Maxfield didn't find out that her daughter Abby had a corpus callosal disorder until she was two years old. Well, Abby has a couple of brain conditions. She was also born without a pituitary gland and when she was 16 hours old she stopped breathing and went blue and that was the first thing that alerted us to something being wrong and for a couple of years the focus was on that and adrenal issues and then before her second birthday, she had an MRI and we were told that she also had partial agenesis of the corpus callosum, but not to worry about that because she didn't need it. And so how was she as a young child? She got sick a lot. She had to be hospitalised a lot because she had no adrenal glands, so that's um, she doesn't make cortisone, so that's sort of a medical issue that means she had to be rushed off to hospital quite often. So she was regarded as someone who had to go to hospital a lot, I suppose, but the corpus callosum part of it, there were lots of things that I have looked at in retrospect that were actually corpus callosal issues, but everyone just used to just shrug their shoulders and say, oh, it must be something to do with the pituitary gland, but um, it wasn't. How did you find out that it was a corpus callosum issue? Well, there was no internet back in those days. There were no mobile phones. We were living in the country. And When um, we were living in Melbourne, I was looking on the internet just sort of trying to get a bit more information and came across a group in America, which was the um, National Organisation for Disorders of the Corpus Callosum called NODOC. And I wrote to someone there and just said, look, I have someone here. I've been told there's nobody else. Can you tell me a little bit more about it? And I got a letter back with some of the information about it. And I wrote back and, you know, sort of in disbelief, sort of immediately and just said, oh, someone's been looking in my window for the last 20 years. That describes my daughter perfectly. Marie Maxfield's daughter, Abby, is now 25. She noticed she was different from others her age as she approached adolescence. I started to get very anxious about everything, just social situations and um, being a bit behind my peers in what I was doing. I went just sort of from a happy little kid that didn't have much worry to worrying about just about everything and not being very happy. (laughs) Do you think that that had something to do with the way you felt you were comparing yourself to the other kids or the way they were treating you? Yeah, I started to notice because, you know, they'd sort of exclude me from things because they thought I'd tell on them and, yeah, because I was worried about things and they weren't and, (laughs) yeah. And what were you interested in that was different to what they were interested in? I was interested in being very organised with things so I would, you know, I would unpack my 
clothes in my cupboard and fold them up and put them back in just for a hobby (laughs) sort of thing, (laughs) you know, and I would still play with cartoon toys and stuff at the age of sort of 12, 13. And And what about your schoolwork and reading and writing? Were you a bit behind other kids in that or...? I was. I was a very slow hand writer all through primary school and secondary school and I'm in the first percentile of handwriting speed. So, yeah, that's quite slow and it takes me a long time to process information so I read things over and over again and that takes me a while. So I was behind but I didn't actually notice it as much until I got to secondary school. Were you able to make friends at all? I had some friends in primary school and, yeah, they were actually often a lot younger than me. So my best friend was five years younger than me and most of my primary school friends were a year or two younger. I think it was just because I could relate better to younger kids than kids my own age. Um, So we were still, you know, playing make-believe games, you know, in grade six and I never fitted into kind of the popular groups and I didn't got to get invited to things and it didn't go any further than, you know, being at school. The most challenging thing is because I've been so encouraged to do things and I've come such a long way from what people expect, I often get told, well, you know, you look fine, you act fine and you fit into the norms, so you mustn't have any challenges. So that's often frustrating because I have a lot of challenges that people don't see. And the reason that I am sort of so capable is because I've had 25 years to learn to fit in and cover it up, I guess. Mm. <laughs> and and I have been encouraged to do things so I'm a lot better off than I could be. But I know that the doctors said to my parents that I would probably never learn to read and write and wouldn't be able to do lots of things and I might turn out to be mentally retarded. They didn't have much information about it at all. But my parents just kept sort of letting me do things as I was growing up and they were both primary school teachers so they thought, well, we're going to just keep aiming at the highest and just keep pushing a little bit further each time and it doesn't matter if it takes a bit longer. So they never sort of had the attitude of, oh, well, she won't be able to do that so we're not going to try so mm, that must have been really helpful for you. Yeah, oh, it definitely was. And as I said, I didn't notice all through primary school. I really didn't know much about it. Abby Kinneborough has what's known as partial agenesis of the corpus callosum. Professor Linda Richards explains how people with this disorder usually present. So the agenesis of the corpus callosum generally means that there are none of the fibres crossing over the midline. But there are a large number of people that have some fibres crossing the midline. But the people with a genesis of the corpus callosum generally have difficulties with social interaction. That's one of the major difficulties that they face. They may have difficulties in learning. So as children, that means that in the classroom, they're the kids that are different and might potentially be disruptive. But as adults, they may be people that have trouble holding down a job, trouble forming meaningful relationships with other people. And obviously, this really affects the quality of life. 
So if the corpus callosum is there to pull the two sides of the brain together, it's surprising that people can cope with a problem there. Yeah. So what's really interesting is that uh, people may have heard about the split brain subjects that Roger Sperry studied in the 80s. Those subjects had intractable epilepsy, many, many seizures a day, up to maybe 100 seizures a day. And a neurosurgical procedure is performed to cut the corpus callosum and that prevents the seizures from travelling from one side of the brain to the other. Now, one of the interesting things after those surgeries are performed was that the patients are really unable to integrate information from two sides of the brain properly. That's actually formed the basis, in fact, Roger Sperry won a Nobel Prize for this work, that really forms the basis of our understanding of the function of the corpus callosum. But people who are born without a corpus callosum have a completely different presentation to people who have had this surgical section of the corpus callosum. So in recent years, it's become evident through scientific research that in fact, there are plastic processes in the brain that try to compensate for the lack of the corpus callosum forming. So there have been recent reports of some magnetic resonance imaging studies, MRI studies, showing that people can have what we call ectopic tracts. So the fibres that would normally cross the corpus callosum find a different route to cross and actually connect the two hemispheres together. So that's perhaps an explanation for why people are able to function without a corpus callosum. That's a fairly spectacular example of brain plasticity, isn't it? It's an example of a different kind of brain plasticity than what we normally think about. When we think of brain plasticity, we usually think of plasticity at the level of connections between individual neurons. So we call them synapses. This is where one neuron talks to the next neuron. And the small synapses are the structures in the brain that we know are altered as we learn a new thing or throughout life, these small synapses can change. And so that's what we normally think of when we think of plasticity. This kind of plasticity is axonal plasticity. This is completely new growth or a new direction of the growth of these fibres across a completely different tract during brain development. So how useful is this in further study of the brain per se? Well, it's extremely important because if we could understand how those plastic processes occur during brain development to enable the brain to wire itself such that it can function in an optimal way, we may be able to repair the brain, even in perhaps during childhood or perhaps in the adult brain. For example, one of the processes might be the kind of stimulation that a young child receives as it's developing. And so some work from my laboratory actually has shown that stimulation of sensory input from both sides of the body is very important for wiring the corpus callosum and that that input is balanced in a way. And so if we can understand those processes, it might be possible to sort of help 
make sure that that kind of stimulation is there as a child is developing so that we can maximise their potential later in life. Linda Richards. You're with All in the Mind on RN and online. I'm Lynne Malcolm. Today, we're looking at the brain structure called the corpus callosum and what happens when it's missing or doesn't develop properly. Marie Maxfield was a primary school teacher and did not give up on her daughter. She worked really hard with Abby to help her to learn to read and write and manage her social challenges. Marie Maxfield was then instrumental in setting up the only Australian support group for people with corpus callosal disorders. It's called OSDOC. We are all volunteers and one thing that we're really, really focused on is that so many things that I found with Abby, there are age gaps. Like you get to 12 and doors shut. You get to 16 and doors shut. She's at 25. Big doors have slammed at 25. And I think we're going to try to focus on the whole lifespan from birth to death virtually, but, you know, and all the bits in between because that's something that's made our life particularly difficult that lots of things just have this age barrier and being rare, it needs support all the way through. It's no good slamming the door at 18 and then there's nowhere to go and you spend the next two years picking up the pieces. It's, it's very disruptive for a life. And the other thing that's difficult for us, we are scattered all over Australia and, you know, we need funds. We need funds to run the organisation. We need funds to produce resources for teachers and resources for doctors. And one of the main things that's really held us together and spearheaded OSDOC has been our association with um, the Queensland Brain Institute with Professor Linda Richards. And she's so good to us she, and, and she's so accessible. And we've been invited there and we've toured the lab and she has just really, really helped us. And at one stage when things were crumbling a bit, she brought us all back together and said, no, you can do it, you need OSDOC. But she's been our guiding light, I suppose you'd say. So we're very indebted to Linda and we hope that we can continue to sort of work with her for a long time into the future. Marie Maxfield was inspired by her experience with her daughter's corpus callosal disorder to study a master's in public health at Melbourne University. Professor Linda Richards and her team at the Queensland Brain Institute have recently launched an international research collaboration on disorders of the corpus callosum. Having access to a larger population gives them a much better chance of identifying the genes involved at a much faster rate. It also may lead to potential treatment and prevention. So at the moment, it would not be possible to regrow a corpus callosum. And in fact, that may not be what we want to do anyway. Given that the brain is plastic and may have made these other connections, what we need to understand is some of these ectopic connections are good, but it appears that there are some that are not beneficial to the subject. So there's an ectopic projection that's been identified by our collaborators in Brazil and in San Francisco in some children that have a partial corpus callosum. So these children don't have a full corpus callosum, but they have some fibres crossing. And in some of those patients, they have a connection from the right frontal cortex to the left occipital, let's say the back of the head, and that projection doesn't normally form. And those children tend to be more intellectually disabled. So this 
potentially this ectopic projection may be contributing to that. So we really want to understand these mechanisms to see whether we can prevent them from happening if possible or to modify them during early development so that we can maximise the chance for the, for the child to have a full and uh, productive life. So to what extent do you think there are children and even adults that have a disorder with the corpus callosum but don't know it? It's very common. So there uh, have been a number of adults that have contacted me recently because we've launched our website and the International Consortium and they've found our research through the OSDOC Association and they've realised that they don't have a corpus callosum for some other reason. So they've had an accident and they've gone into the hospital and had an MRI because they hit their head or something like that. And then they discover they have a corpus callosum malformation. And this can be a very sort of scary and confusing time because even within the medical community, there's not a lot of awareness about the corpus callosum and that it's an important brain structure and it can affect your life. And so it can be quite a scary and confusing time for people who could be even in their 60s and find out that they've had this brain malformation all their lives. But I think with time and certainly in our discussions with them and explaining to them what's happened, it helps to sort of put things in place a little bit for them and it helps them explain to their families this is what I've been struggling with all my life and it isn't just because I had this particular personality disorder, if you like, this has been affecting me. So if people are listening to this and, and feel that there might be something possibly with them or with their children, what do you suggest? The only way to diagnose this is with an MRI. And so I would suggest if people are concerned that they should discuss this with their doctor and decide if, for them, it's something that they want to do. Now, having an MRI is not going to be able to lead to a, a cure for this, but it could help them understand what's going on. Professor Linda Richards and her team are asking for people with corpus callosal malfunctions to register with their new Australian database to help with further research, and we'll put a link to that on our website. Abby Kinneborough is now 25 and after steadily persevering through high school and TAFE courses, she's now at university studying social work. She's written an article on the OSDOC website about her personal experience of a condition. She writes that people with corpus callosal disorders and their families are in many ways ahead of the rest of society. What does she mean by that? I think I mean that they have had a lot of experience and had to deal with a lot of adversity that a lot of people don't have to deal with and they've had to change how they deal with things to fit in with society. So I think we're in a lot of ways we're very resilient and able to cope with adversity because we deal with it every day almost. What advice would you give to people who have similar difficulties? Make sure that you're recognised for things that you can do. So don't let people say that you won't be able to do certain things because nobody knows with this condition. It's a huge, well, it's very varied in the degrees that you can get. And 
basically don't let people tell you that you can't do something too early on and also be recognised for challenges that you do face. So if we're not acknowledged for things that we do sort of have to push through and hurdles that we have to jump over, that's also a bit insulting. So make sure people know what you are actually facing, even if you look fine to them. Yeah. So what are your hopes and goals for the future? Definitely to build more awareness for the OSDOC organisation and corpus callosal conditions to get more support for myself and for other adults around Australia and also to hopefully do something with my social work course. You know, if I'm able to stick to it, I would like to tie in the volunteer stuff that I'm already doing with the social work course. That's sort of my aims at the moment. Abby Kinneborough. Head to the All in the Mind website for further details and links related to today. Production today by Diane Dean and Simon Branthwaite. I'm Lynn Malcolm. Bye for now. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.